This is the Business of College Sports podcast with your host, the founder of businessofcollegesports.com, Christy Dosh. Find her on Twitter and Instagram at sportsbizmiss. Welcome to the Business of College Sports. I'm your host, Christy Dosh of the Sports Biz Miss, and I am excited to bring you a new episode this week with Malika Underwood. She is the new SVP of licensing for One Team Partners, where she is going to focus on growing the college business at the company. You all know that I have been following the name, image, and likeness issues since the very beginning. It's been a frequent topic here on the podcast because it's something that I am fascinated by and constantly learning new things about. And I am endeavoring to work with athletic departments going forward to educate student athletes about how they can best monetize their name, image, and likeness, particularly female student athletes who I think are going to have some amazing opportunities to come up. And so I was excited to talk to Malika today because she is a former student athlete. She played volleyball at UNC, and she's the longest tenured player on a USA baseball national team, male or female. She's earned five women's baseball world cup medals as well as two women's baseball world cup all tournament team selections uh you know so she's pretty cool. (laughs) I was really excited to talk to her because she's worked at Collegiate Licensing Company where she managed all the partnerships with the SEC, ACC, and Big East. So uh, those of you working in the college space may have run into Malika before. She came to One Team Partners from the Brander Group where she worked on the forefront of the college NIL issue. She's also managed partnerships with player associations to develop business on behalf of athletes in the college licensing and marketing space. One team launched as a joint venture with the NFLPA, the MLBPA, and Redbird Capital to maximize on the value of athletes' rights across group licensing, marketing, media, and investing. So I thought she would be the perfect person to come on and talk about the types of group licensing deals we see at the pro level and how that might or might not translate over to the collegiate space. Because we know NIL is coming. We just don't know exactly what format it's going to take. Uh, We've got NIL legislation. Uh, pending with the NCAA. We've got federal legislation pending. We've got a handful of states that have already passed NIL legislation. So as we wait to see how this shakes out and uh, whether group rights and group licensing are going to be something we see or not, I just thought it would be great to have her on to talk a little bit about group licensing. And then we also dove into the opportunities for female student athletes because uh, I have become a big believer that there are going to be some massive opportunities for female student athletes. And Malaysia, was a great person to chat about that with. So without further ado, here is my interview with Malika Underwood. Welcome, Malika. I'm so glad to have you on the Business of College Sports podcast today. We we already got a few seconds to chat before I hit record. And uh, just based on the few things we chatted about already, I'm really excited to dive in for everyone else to hear. So thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. People who listen to the podcast know that uh, the NIL legislation and all the issues around NIL are something I've been really interested in and following since the very beginning. And we still don't know exactly what kind of shape this is all going to take, both in terms of the NCAA legislation, but also in terms of federal legislation that has been introduced. Um, And so I want to start out and talk a little bit about uh, your company that you work with, One Team Partners, and what you all do in the context of professional sports. And then we'll dive in for folks and talk about how you've been preparing for NIL and sort of where it goes from here. So if you could kick us off and tell us a little bit about One Team Partners and what you all do right now in the professional space. 
Yeah, so at One Team Partners, we manage the commercial group licensing rights for athletes for the NFLPA, MLBPA, MLSPA, U.S. Women's National Soccer Team PA, WMBPA, and the U.S. Rugby PA. So a wide swath of athletes that we represent. And I um, like to say that we do business on behalf of those group rights in a number of ways. Um, Group licensing is a piece of it, but also marketing and athlete procurement and also content. And also we have a vertical that focuses on venture. And we're looking for ways to help the collective um, maximize their group licensing rights and, and in unique ways. Because when you think of group licensing, you probably just think of products like video games or trading cards or apparel products, but there are a lot of other ways to capitalize on the collective uh, across sports and across athletes. And so as a company, we, uh, we take that on and and we've got a, a, a team of experts in the area and we're, we're doing great business and we're about to uh, be a year old, which is, which is amazing. That's fantastic. I know when I was kind of digging through the website, I've heard of the company previously and seen you all in newsletters that I get and things like that. Um, but in looking at the website, I was really interested. You know, my background is that I was a corporate attorney before I moved into a reporting on sports business. And I saw that partnership that you all have. I think it's with Redbird Capital and just thought that was really interesting. I think you're right in the group uh, licensing context, what people think of, uh, I think, especially in the college space, first and foremost, is the EA sports game. And we'll get into that later because I wanted to ask you some questions around that. Um, But can you tell people a little bit, like what are some of those group licensing sort of opportunities we don't immediately think about? Or how does that investment piece come in? I I think it's interesting what you all are doing. Well, so... It's interesting because you can build, and we do this, we, we build on, on licensing programs and layer on some of those other elements. So if you take, for example, a, a, one of it in its basic form, um, the video game, we are licensing those players' rights um, for use in the game. But there are also opportunities for athletes to make appearances um, or to be involved in marketing, sometimes through social media, sometimes through activations um, in person, though, of course, uh, during the pandemic, those, those have changed and maybe are becoming more, more virtual. Um, but hopefully one day we'll get back to, to in-person events. Um, and so we layer on some of those other things and then generating content and, and activating athletes in content to help promote the, the licensed product. Um, and, and then in some cases, when we do licensing agreements, we actually take equity in the company. And in that way, uh, our athletes benefit from, from that company's growth, not just from the sale of, say, licensed product or from the marketing of that, of that product, but also in the growth of that company. And, you know, a question I see come across on Twitter a lot when we talk about things like the video games and we talk about the group licensing and pro sports. And I think people have questions what it will look like if there are group licensing opportunities in the college space. When you do a group licensing deal for something like a video game that really crosses the entire league, not just a small group of players, are all of the players generally compensated equally in those sort of situations? Or are the big stars making more money? I know people have got a lot of questions about that uh, when we get into the college context. Yeah, and that's a great question. And the model can vary. 
And the model does vary across players association and, and that's set by the players themselves and how they want to handle it. For example, for the NFLPA, um, in cases like the video game where the, there are, is a broad swath of athletes included and you can't really tell why a consumer is buying it um, mm. or if, if that consumer's favorite uh, player uh, really drives more sales or not. So, so in that case, compensation is split equally. But in cases where jersey sales or t-shirt sales or things can be identified specific to a player, sales can be identified specific to a player, that player is then compensated um, based on those sales. And that's the framework within the NFLPA. But if you take, say, the MBPA, um, they have decided, the players themselves have decided to put all of the royalties in a pot and distribute equally. So even though uh, LeBron James drives sales of jerseys uh, more than any other player in the league, his royalty compensation is put into a pot and then every player benefits from the sale of those jerseys. So it can be modeled out in a number of different ways. Um, and that's actually one of the things we are doing at One Team Partners in terms of um, trying to figure out what makes the most sense in the college space and, and um, proposing those models, uh, you know, when the time is right and, and some of the and some of the legislation is in place and some of the policy changes on the NCAA uh, are, are in place, we'll be able to, to provide a model based on our experience in the pro space that makes the most sense in the college space. That leads really nicely into the next thing I had planned to ask you anyway, which is as NIL legislation has become a bigger topic of issue, you know, particularly I'd say over the past year, year and a half, what kind of things has One Team Partners been doing to prepare for this, knowing that obviously we still don't know exactly what it's going to look like. So it's tough to prepare for, uh, you know, a number of different scenarios that might happen. But what are those sort of, you know, conversations um, that are happening within your company or things you're thinking about as you wait for the final legislation to take shape? Yeah, there's a lot of contingency planning that we're doing, um, trying to figure out where this could end up um, and how to best position ourselves as a company to be a solution. We obviously think that we're uniquely qualified to manage group rights based off of our experience. Um, but we also know that there are still a lot of things to be determined. And, and you've already said this, but there's federal legislation, there's state legislation, there's NCAA policy changes that are being drafted and changed and voted on. And so um, we, are, we are just doing what we can internally to think about all of the potential paths, all of the potential results um, and over time, because I do also think that this will not just be um, a change that happens overnight. I think things will change and then they will change again and then they will change again. So how can we be prepared for that? I also think that um, we are doing quite a bit as it relates to planning for group player rights but there's also, there's also going to be opportunity in the individual player right side too. And so we want to figure out what role do we play in each of those areas? Um, what, what do we offer to athletes? Um, how can we help educate college uh, administrators about group rights and about individual rights and how that plays out? So we're doing quite a bit, both internally and externally, in terms of the conversations that we're having uh, with with campus 
administrators, but also licensees um, and retailers who are interested in, and other constituents who are also trying to figure this, this out and where we're going. What's the kind of buzz you hear from licensees at this point? You know, what is the interest in having access to student athletes? Well, it's interesting because I think I think on two fronts, and and I'm going to go back to this quite a bit. But there's there again are sort of two buckets. There's the group player right side, and there's the individual side. I think on the individual side, brands realize that athletes are going to be or already are in many ways influencers and that there is value in partnering with those athletes and they're they're trying to figure out how best to do that what platforms might exist for them to do that um, and then on the group player right side just as they do in 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 the professional space they see group player rights as an efficient way to access athletes and so I think it's important to understand that there's a lot of benefit that can come from group player rights in terms of um, the impact that these NIL changes can have on athletes and not just that top athlete, not just the Trevor Lawrence's of the world, but all athletes across multiple sports. Um, and so, so I, I, you know, I, I just think that there's, um, there's, there's quite a bit of conversation going on about that and, and licensees specifically, if you think about licensees like EA Sports, or you think about a Nike or Under Armour or a Fanatics, when they look at licensing, they're not going to want to go to individual athletes to um, strike deals directly with them. They're going to want to find an efficient way to do that so that they can have jerseys in the market or that NCAA football game can come back into play. Now, and a lot of that is dependent on the idea of co-branding, which right now is not something the NCAA policy changes would allow for, um, but I would argue could help make the pie bigger for everyone. And that includes colleges and, and could really generate um, uh, some incremental revenue for colleges in a time when they, they could really use it. Yeah, how important do you think that piece is? Because there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not student athletes will have the right or the ability to reference their school to maybe wear school gear. And we saw the NAIA legislation came out and said, no problem. If you want to wear school gear or talk about your school, talk about your position as a student athlete, we have no problem with that. The NCAA, meanwhile, um, has seemed to have a much greater problem with that. And the legislation we've seen coming from the states and at the federal level has varied on that as well. Well, how important do you think it is um, for student athletes to be able to very directly reference their position as student athletes? So I'm of the opinion that co-branding is not required for a successful group licensing program in college, but allowing it would make the pie bigger for both schools and players. Mm -hmm. And in the professional ecosystem, athlete plus team co-branding represents more than 50% of the market. Um, I also think there's a unintended negative impact to not allowing co-branding because it it pits college athletes against their school and potentially create a dysfunctional environment where you've got brands deciding, well, do I want to partner with these athletes who I feel may have uh, uh, greater influence or with the school? Uh, So so I think there's a better model uh, where the athlete and the college 
can work together. And in that sense, I don't mean that the college is working on behalf of the athlete or vice right. versa, but that, but they're working together to create a greater investment in college sports, which benefits both the athletes and the schools. And there can be guideposts put in place to ensure that, um, that certain things don't happen and, and, and make sure that the pie grows for the, for the, for all parties, um, while protecting the rights that are so important to, the college economic model today. So I, you know, I, I just think that it is important and, and in some categories, it's very important, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean there can't be a group rights program. Um, just as an example, and this is, this is just an idea at this point, but, you know, we were talking earlier about the NCAA football game. Well, if we can't do it in combination with the schools, can we still create a backyard version of a football game that uses the name, image, and likeness. And instead of playing in their stadium, they're playing, you know, in a local park. Yes. The answer is yes, that still can happen. Is it as appealing to the consumer as the NCAA football game that we all remember and that we anticipate would be that much better once you put student athletes into the game? Um, no, but it still it still would be an interesting game, and it still would have appeal, especially in this day and age where uh, video games are so popular and and, and mobile games, and, and there's just so many ways um, for us to explore group licensing, whether or not um, co-branding is allowed. And something else I wanted to ask that it occurred to me, maybe the average fan listening might not realize. You know, we talk group licensing, and you think something like e the EA Sports game, and uh, you know, you're looking at multiple teams, full rosters, that sort of thing. But how many student athletes or professional athletes does it take to make a group? Like, what size are the group licensing deals that you typically see? That's a really great question. And in the college space, that's still to be determined. And that's actually one of the finer details that we at One Team Partners are trying to help define. Um, and in, based off of our experience with professional sports, um, but the group can be defined um, as, and, and usually what happens is there's a threshold set. And by threshold, I mean, it's the minimum number of players, of athletes that a company has to use in order to be considered a group. And it varies for the WMBPA, it's four. For the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, it's four. For um, MLBPA, it's three. For NFLPA, it's six. So it just depends um, a bit on, on the group, on the, the group's decision around what makes sense for them. And I think there is a door open in the college space to define it. There's, there's white space there at this point. Um, what we offer is, is the unique uh, perspective of having dealt with many groups in order to help define what a group in college could, could or should look like. Right. Are there certain, when we talk about group licensing, and I know there's going to be individual opportunities as well, but are there certain sports that are going to benefit more from group licensing than others? I think, first of all, I think that all sports and all athletes can benefit from group licensing. Um, I do think that there are some initial programs, uh, licensing programs, that will immediately impact certain sports, including football and basketball. But, you know, early critics of, of, of NIL changes in general um, really, really push back on the idea that 
only the star athletes in revenue sports like football and basketball were going to benefit. Um, and, and, and to your earlier points, those stars probably will receive lucrative individual NIL opportunities. Um, but the idea that they will be the only ones who benefit, I think unduly downplays the value of other athletes, especially female athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think to suggest that there won't be opportunities for female athletes through group licensing is to, to suggest, in, in my opinion, that it continues to perpetuate this false idea that consumers aren't interested in women's sports. And that's not true. I mean, just as an example, you know, we've seen significant increases in viewership and engagement numbers for WNBA and the NWSL this year as coverage is, has expanded. Um, so if female athletes can generate substantial followings and become influencers, there is most certainly demand for licensed products and marketing programs that include their NIL. You know, it's, it's on us to go out and find those. Right. Um, but I think the demand out there exists. Okay, so now we get to brag, I get to brag on you a little bit, because I bet you're the type of person who's not going to brag on yourself. So I want to talk a little bit about you as an athlete, because I do want to dive just a little bit into the opportunities that are going to be available for female student athletes. I told you before we started recording, um, that's something that's really important to me moving forward and something that I want to work with athletic departments on moving forward, because I do think there are going to be tons of opportunities for female student athletes, particularly as social media influencers. And quite frankly, a lot of them already have huge followings and already are influencers. They're just not able to monetize that influence yet. So I I did a little digging because I heard that you were quite the athlete. And uh, in addition to playing volleyball at UNC, you are also the longest tenured player on a USA baseball national team, male or female, which is so incredibly impressive. I played softball my whole life um, and love softball and baseball. And so I read that and I was like, I, this is so cool that I'm getting to have her on my podcast. I, I'm so impressed with you and your career, but also your background as an athlete. So I want to know, um, kind of looking back, you and I were talking earlier, we're about the same age and we talked about how uh, we're kind of glad social media didn't exist when we were in college. <laughs> but <Absolutely>. but <laughs> what kind of opportunities do you think are available for female student athletes and how can they start preparing for this? I and mean, we know it's coming in some format. Um, so how can we start getting ready for that. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I think in a way, um, athletes and, and, and young people have already um, started to prepare for this moment because they, they're much more aware of their social presence um, mm-hmm. and, and, and the impact or value that has than, than I ever was. Um, and, and 100% agree that I'm glad there wasn't any social media when I was in college, but, but they've grown up around it, right? So they know, they know the value that, that they can bring through that channel. I also think that athletes and female athletes specifically uh, are, are, are coming up in a time when there's just a much, there's a much um, bigger and broader um, impact that they can have on other, on younger athletes and on the market itself. And so I think that there will be opportunities um, from an individual standpoint for them to get directly involved in, in camps and with brands. And, and that's both at um, a local level, but also at a national level as brands are more interested in 
um, making connections with female athletes. And then I think through group licensing, there's going to be opportunities through consumer products and marketing in that same way, where brands are going to want to um, partner with those athletes uh, and really leverage some of their success. Uh, and for some of these athletes, it, it may be the pinnacle of their success. You know, some, some may go on in certain sports and have opportunities to play um, at the professional level, but, but some may not, or, or some may, may um, um, go on to play internationally or, or compete internationally. Uh, but, but I think there's just going to be a lot of opportunities. I, th I think that they're both from a licensing and from a marketing standpoint, this, this, these policy changes could have the biggest impact on female athletes and maybe even bigger on female athletes than male athletes, because it will start to put drive um, or infuse money and attention into women's athletes and sports. And that could be a game changer long-term in terms of um, where, where uh, female athletes and athletics is within the context of um, our society. And so um, I'm, I'm really excited about this. And I, the, the concern that people express around this, I have the, the opposite um, uh, reaction. I get really excited and think this could open a lot of doors for a lot of athletes, female athletes. I did a podcast sort of early on in the NIL discussion, well, early on in the, the existence of this podcast about potential Title IX issues. And, and I still think from like an athletic department standpoint, there are some things they've got to think about um, and could be potential issues down the road from a Title IX perspective, which I'm not even saying is a bad thing. Like, for example, there's always been sort of a debate around marketing and promotion, which is one of the, the things listed under Title IX. And we all know that athletic departments spend more time and money on promoting things like football and men's basketball. And the argument that athletic directors often make is, you know, those are the revenue producing sports. It makes sense to spend money on the revenue producing sports. But as, um, you know, as the NIL door opens and we're talking about creating an even playing field for both male and student athletes to get these marketing opportunities, I just think that's something that may be looked at a little more closely. If you're putting up billboards for football, but you're only doing free advertising for, say, women's volleyball, you know, I, I do think there's the potential someone will raise that down the road. But, you know, I don't think that's a reason not to do it. And sort of the flip side of that is a lot of the discussion we hear about women's professional sports and maybe why they don't get the attention they deserve is around this idea that we aren't really raised to, you know, watch and get excited about and promote women's sports. And so if we started earlier with, you know, college or, you know, maybe it's even earlier than that, and we're placing, you know, more importance and shining more of a spotlight on women's sports, then, you know, I think there's almost a trickle up effect as if trickle down where women's professional sports then uh, become more popular and get more airtime. And, uh, you know, something as I think about this more over the last few weeks and about opportunities for female student athletes, the, the thing that doesn't make sense in my head um, is you always hear these studies about the buying power that women have. I mean, we all know women make a lot of the buying decisions in households. And so it seems to me like you would want to tap into female, professional, and 
female student athletes to tap into that female buying power. Like I might not buy something because Trevor Lawrence tells me to buy it, but you know, I might buy it if there's a women's basketball player I love who is, you know, promoting it. So um, I just, I found it interesting that brands haven't worked with more female athletes up to this point. And I'm hoping that this opens the door for that because don't marketers want to reach women as consumers? That's right. I mean, you're spot on on everything that you just said. And I, I do think that opening this up at a collegiate level to allow female athletes, many of them at the pinnacle of their career, to be, to be spokespersons or to, be, to have licensed products, whatever the case may be, to connect with these brands um, and for these brands to connect with them and through them, it is going to um, really, really broaden our perspective on women's athletics. I think like this is this is a game changer. And so I think if we look at it that way, um, yes, are there going to be some some issues? And yes, do we need to address equity and make sure that these opportunities are, are provided on an equal level? A hundred percent, we do. But this is going to to open up some opportunities for female athletes that otherwise um, they don't get. And, and quite frankly, once they're past the collegiate level, um, again, there are, there are opportunities for certain sports to play at a professional level and for some elite athletes to benefit from uh, their, their college careers and, and kind of move on into the professional ranks and, and take advantage of that. Um, but this is just going to open open some some big doors, I think. By again, by infusing money and attention into uh, women's athletics, this is this is going to be a game changer. And maybe the next step is we look, you know, you go back to Title IX and what that did in terms of access for female athletes to play at the collegiate level. This could be the next step in in really in really growing the games. And I say that broadly, like across all sports. Um, for female athletes. Another concern people bring up is sort of the distraction this could potentially come obviously for male and female student athletes in terms of trying to balance different things. When you were a student athlete or, or sort of from the perspective of a student athlete, do you think this is going to be a distraction? Do they have time to focus on, you know, something like growing their social media? What do you think about that from a student athlete perspective? I think most of them are probably already doing that. <laughs> so so in, in, in all honesty, I, you know, I, I do think that there is a level of education and, and probably some, um, you want to call them guideposts that can be put up to just kind of help um, athletes manage the changes that are going to happen. Uh, but ultimately I have every, um, I, I, I believe strongly that, that every athlete can handle this. They're already juggling a number of balls as it relates to their athletic commitments, their social lives and their academics. And I think that um, they, they, of all students on a campus, are going to be the best equipped to manage this and figure out how to um, do all of the things and, and still perform well in the classroom and on the field or on the court. And then just from a content perspective, we touched on this a little when we were talking about, you know, whether or not they'll have access to referring directly to their experience as a student athlete, whether they're going to be able to, you know, have on a sweatshirt that's got a logo on it or what have you. 
what do you think in terms of content? Should they be, and I'm thinking from a social media perspective, should they be hyper-focused on athletic related content? Or if somebody's really into fashion or really into beauty, or maybe they're really into cooking, or I think somebody threw out, when I was talking to one of the schools, they had a student athlete who has a YouTube channel all about making smoothies. Um, you know, does how, what should that balance look like between highlighting athletic content, which you might be more known for versus something like cooking or fashion or beauty that you might be able to take with you after you graduate? I think that from an individual standpoint, that some of those off the field, off the court type things are going to be um, big or should be big in terms of focus for for, for student athletes. Um, From a group licensing standpoint, that's where I think a lot of the co-branding opportunities, um, the, the, the jerseys and tees and video games, and even from a marketing standpoint, I feel like that those things can live in that space and be done well, efficiently, and not impose on the, the student athletes too much, right? Because most of the legwork there then would be handled by the organization that's managing that. And, and the requirements of a student athlete's time would be would be limited because the the use of their name, image, and likeness um, is is basically passive use, right? It's just mm-hmm. put onto a product or incorporated into a game or or whatever the case may be. So so I, I I think group licensing actually provides a model, and I know the NCAA um, gets fearful of this group licensing model, and much of that fear comes from the models they see in the professional sports and the tie to unionization, but right. unionization isn't a prerequisite for this. They, we can do this without unionizing the college athletes, but creating a third party organization that can manage that. And then on the individual side, that opens the door for those athletes to focus in on some of their uh, interests, whether it be um, smoothie making or some other business or um, partnering with a company, maybe a, a local company that that wants to promote the fact that that this athlete has interests outside of their sport. So mm-hmm. I think they can live together. And I, th- and I, and I do think that the group licensing model, um, when it's better understood by administrators and the NCAA and even legislators at the federal and state level, really does provide an excellent model for executing so many of those things in terms of co-branded products um, and in um, um, uh, marketing that 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 otherwise they're sort of concerned about as it relates to individual rights. Yes, and you actually covered the last question that I was going to have for you about whether or not this had to involve some sort of players union. (laughs) So now I don't even have to ask you, you hit on it already. So thank you for reading my mind. (laughs) No problem. problem. It's obviously an issue that comes up a lot, right? Like the the, the NCAA is just very concerned about, um, about that. And I, I think we just have to be clear that, that this doesn't have to be a union and, and, and let's just take that aside. Like I'm not making a comment about whether there should be a union or not. I'm just saying we can create group rights without that um, right. tie. And, and uh, one team partners is in a unique position to do that. We're a third party and we manage the commercial licensing group player rights for a lot of organizations. And most of them are unions, but we are not. Uh, and so we can prove that model out right here. 
Perfect. Well, I will include the contact information and some links over to One Team Partners. Is there a social media network or two that you are active on if people want to follow you and learn more? I am. I, this is probably telling of my age, but I, I'm not very active on on social on social media. Um, but people can track me down on LinkedIn um, if they're if they're interested in following. And I've, I've started to post a lot of stuff that that we're doing at One Team Partners because I think it's really meaningful stuff. Um, and it, and again, it's across all of our players associations, not just football and basketball. It includes a lot of stuff that we're doing for for our um, female athletes, and I'm really proud of of the work that we're doing. Well, I will put up a link for your LinkedIn as well so people can connect with you there. I so appreciate you taking time with us and breaking down uh, a lot of the questions I think folks have around group licensing. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you once again to Malika Underwood, the new SVP of licensing of One Team Partners for joining us here on the Business of College Sports Podcast today. I hope that you learned something new. This got the ideas flowing when it comes to group licensing and also when it comes to how female student athletes might benefit from this new ecosystem. I hope to have some exciting, more concrete news to share shortly about my new venture with my friend Stephanie Staboulis. We are are going to be offering uh, some education for female student athletes, but also for coaches and others in athletic departments. We are really excited to unveil what we are going to be doing moving forward. I've had some fantastic conversations with uh, several of you who I know listen to the podcast and read my work about how your athletic department can get ready for what's coming with NIL. And I just love that there are so many athletic departments who are being forward thinkers about this, who are embracing this and trying to figure out how can you provide the best education and the best opportunities for your student athletes, not only while they're student athletes, but also how can you set them up for success with this so that when they graduate and they leave, these opportunities don't end. And being an entrepreneur myself, I am really excited to work with student athletes and teach them some of the entrepreneurship that I've learned over the last five and a half years of running and growing my PR agency. And I'm just so looking forward to working with student athletes. I wish I had known more about being an entrepreneur when I was that age, uh, but learned it uh, eventually. (laughs) Still learning every day and can't wait to share what I've learned with student athletes. So I will have more coming on that soon. I'll probably have Stephanie on the podcast with me soon as well so that we can chat more about this. Until then, I hope that you are having a great week and I will be back again with you next week.